before we get started, I did want to share this with everybody. A question came up uh, during the adult Bible class about a timeline that we showed on a video, uh, the timeline of when different denominations came into existence. Matt told me after class that he found it on Google. I think if you search Don Blackwell. Okay, Don Blackwell timeline of churches. If you Google that, it will bring up. It's like the third or fourth thing down, maybe, <clears throat> he said, but it will bring up that timeline that was shown during the video. So um, be a nice resource if anybody wants it. I will say, I, and I've, I've debated this before, um, about I, I've tried to start using Facebook, I guess, in more of a, a positive way instead of just talking about a bunch of nonsense stuff, which is a lot of, what a lot of people do a lot of times. But trying to actually put uh, church-related things, inviting people to services, and I posted... I don't know, maybe it's yesterday, I guess, inviting people to come and share just what the sermon topic was going to be. Didn't really go and tell a whole lot of other people, but I've had a lot of family and friends show up today, and I know they had to have seen it from there. So um, I appreciate everybody coming, um, and that just kind of shows that it, Facebook can be a powerful tool if you use it the right way. Um, think for just a second. I, I know we're kind of getting into vacation season right now. Um, What's one of the things that we typically try to do as we're starting to, to, I guess, anticipate our family vacation coming or something that we're going to be doing? We're going to be off work for a little while. Well, one of the biggest things that we typically will do is we spend a good two or three weeks, maybe a month or something, planning. We, we try to get our mind focused around this concept that, okay, well, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be doing this. What do I want to do to have fun? What do I want to do when I go over here? Where are we going to stay at? Where are we going to do this? And your mind gets in this mode of whether it's the mountains or the beach or the lake or wherever you're going to be at, you get in this mindset of vacation. I've always liked using an analogy of athletes. I grew up playing sports all the time. You see athletes a lot of times, and I know people have probably seen it, um, people in the room who've played sports may may have done this themselves, but you'll see athletes walk in around game time or sit in the locker rooms or something with headphones on. Well, the reason they're doing that is they're trying to get their mind focused on what they're supposed to be doing. They're trying to drown out everything else around them, and it allows them to kind of go through a routine or a ritual more or less of what they do to prepare for a game and allows them to focus their mind on what they need to be thinking about preparing for the game. Um, a bride getting ready for a wedding. I mean, this is not just a few weeks before, months before, sometimes decades before a wedding. They're already in this mode, okay, what am I going to do? I'm planning this out. And it seems like everything you think about has to do with, okay, how is this going to affect that day? How is it going to affect my wedding day? Um, most all of us in here, a few younger ones, maybe not yet, but when you start dating somebody for the first time, it seems to consume your mind. Everything that you think about has to deal with this special person in your life. What can I do for them? What, what are my decisions that I make going to affect them as well? We start creating this mindset around various different things in our lives, and it, it always seems to consume our thoughts. And it's going to pop up a very different, various different things throughout our life, um, but we start looking at how decisions that we make, how it's going to affect this very specific event, this very specific thing that's going to happen in our life, we start setting goals, and we start working to try to achieve those goals. It could be retirement. It could be whatever it is in our life, but we work towards this event. You know, is, is there necessarily anything wrong with having goals in our life? Well, no. There's nothing wrong with having a goal in our life of, of trying to achieve something while we're here on earth. But what I want us to think about today 
is how much do we allow these other things to completely consume our thoughts, to consume everything that we do. We focus our mind, like we said, on vacation, preparing for a wedding, preparing for all these other things. How many times do we sit and focus our mind on God and give him our full attention? Four hours a week? And that's how many times we're typically here physically in this building. Maybe you set aside an hour or so a day to study at home. So you give him 10, 11 hours a week. But outside of that, do we ever focus our mind on things that are eternal? You know, the, the Bible says that there's two different mindsets we can have. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. And there's a couple passages I want us to turn to today. So I do ask that you... Uh, Go ahead and be getting your Bibles out. And No, I did not prepare a PowerPoint this morning, so uh, I don't, can't throw them up on the wall, so you're going to have to look at me during this. But turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, let's begin re reading in verse 5. It said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what does it mean to be carnally minded? Does it mean that if I ever think about anything related to my life here on this earth that I'm sinning? Well, no. I mean, we have to plan. We have to do things. We have to plan, okay, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to do this stuff? I mean, so no, that's not what this means. To be carnally minded is to be purely after our own fleshly desires, that all I think about is what is here on this earth, that I get these thoughts in my mind and they, I let them take root in my mind so deep that it consumes everything I think about. And basically I push aside anything spiritually related. Enmity with God, I mean, what does that mean? To be enmity basically means you oppose it. And so somebody who is carnally minded, if they're enmity, in enmity with God, they're in essence opposing God. That's not a situation that I personally want to be in. So no, it's not wrong to focus on things. Things we talked about a minute ago are vacation, planning for it, an athlete getting ready for a ball game, um, preparing for a wedding, dating somebody else. There's not wrong to think about these things, but if we allow those to consume us, now it's crossed into are we carnally minded. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. And I know we've all heard this before, but I think there's a lot of, of meaning in this. Let's talk about Starting in verse 24, it says, this is Paul speaking. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know, I, I saw an analogy one time, um, is the best I had ever heard somebody describe it. And so I actually brought something with me, and I use it for this analogy. Again, this is another of those things I posted on Facebook yesterday telling people I needed to borrow a rope um, and I was going to use it this morning. And so, of course, people think I was coming to tie everybody to your pew so you can't leave. No, that's not what I'm doing, I promise. 
But you have a rope. And you have, and it's, I know everybody can't see it. It's 15, 20 feet long. Imagine this rope represents the timeline of your existence. Your eternal timeline of your existence. And so I, mean, I understand the rope is, it ends, but imagine it just goes on forever. Eternally, we will continue to go on forever. This red part represents my time on earth. So I have this small little section here that's red that represents the time that I'm going to be on this planet. And then I have the rest of this. That's just going to go on and go on and go on. It's not going to stop. I mean, the Bible describes it as a vapor that's going to vanish. And you can see the, the relationship between what I think is an eternity, 70, 80 years if I'm blessed, 100 years maybe, but it's nothing in comparison to what's going to come after it. Some of us, for some reason, get our minds so ingrained on this red section of the rope. It consumes everything that we think about. Everything that we talk about, everything that we live for happens in this red section. Why is that? And I, I understand that for some reason we, we decide that, okay, we're going to go to school right here and we're going to work and we're going to work and work and save and save and save so I can enjoy that little part right there. So I can retire and have fun right here. Not thinking anything about all the rest of this. Why do we do that? You know, the Bible teaches that what I do during this red part is going to dictate how I spend the rest of eternity. Millions and millions of years of how I'm going to exist are all dictated by what I do right here. So when you go back to this passage where Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it says that he's running a race. His finish line, it's the end of this red section right here. It's the end of the tape. When he crosses that finish line, he understands he's not going for a perishable crown. He's going for an imperishable crown. He's planning his life. He's living his life based on what's going to happen in eternity, where he's going to spend the rest of eternity, and the impact that he can have for that. You know, if we can't learn in our lives to, and I'm not saying that we, we forget everything that's going on in our lives, that, that we just ignore everything else, but if we can't become a runner running this race who is focused on this finish line at the end of our life, we will spend eternity somewhere. It's, I mean, there's no one's going to avoid the rest of this rope. We all have a rope. But it's what I do right here that controls that. And so if we can't learn to change what we focus on, what we allow our mind to be consumed with, what's going to happen? Do I have the eternal mindset? This is why I showed this. The, to me, this is a great analogy of the difference between a carnal mindset and an eternal. A person who is carnally minded focuses right here. That's it. Someone who's eternally minded pays attention to the rest of it, and they understand the impact that this little red section can have on their life. Let's look back at verse 27 again. Same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. This is how we create this eternal mindset. And so we, we ask the question is how do we get there? How do I learn to train my mind to where I'm not so focused on things of this earth that I forget the rest of the rope out here? 
then I'm only looking at the red section. I don't think God expects us to be completely out of this world, I guess. He expects that we're going to live in this world. But there's a difference in living in the world and then being of the world. You know, Jesus, when he was praying um, in John chapter 17, he, he prayed to God, he was praying for his disciples, and he made a statement and said that, that he's given them the word of God and the world hates them for it. And he said that I, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. God knew that his disciples were going to live in this world, but he did not want them to be of the world. He was praying that they could have an eternal mindset instead of a carnal mindset and let that guide the decisions that they make. You know, it'd be nice if we had some examples in Scripture of, of people who lived with an eternal mindset to see what that looks like. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 3. There are a few that we're going to look at this morning. Daniel chapter 3, and I know we've all heard, heard this story. We have King Nebuchadnezzar. He has built a golden statue, a massive, massive statue. And he's put out a decree. It actually says that he called all the leaders from Babylon in. They all came to where he was at. Different hierarchies, doesn't matter what it's down to. Not just the high, the high people, any leader of any kind, they came to where he was at and explained to them the decree that when they hear the music playing, it wasn't just a trumpet, but it said it was basically playing in an orchestra type thing where you hear the, the trumpet and the whatever else. When you hear this music playing, it is decreed you are to stop what you're doing and you are to bow to this statue. You are to bow to this golden statue. Look over in verse 12. You, you have a certain group, it says the Chaldeans, that they came to the king. And this is what they said to him. Verse 12, it says, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Let's stop for a second. I'm, everybody knows who we're going to talk about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these weren't just your three normal citizens out plowing their garden of a day and working and providing. I mean, they were, they were working, but listen to what it says their job was. There are certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These men had leadership roles in the area that they were in. They weren't just your everyday normal citizen. And just from being in, I guess, a professional environment long enough now, you, you start to learn that when you run a business, when you look at management, if your management team doesn't all work on it at least when you present to the rest of your employees and to the public, if it doesn't appear that you're all on the same page, the business will not work. You can't look like the management team is fighting against each other constantly. Otherwise, nobody's going to follow them because they don't even know what they're doing themselves. They have to have a united front. When you look at what King Nebuchadnezzar was doing, he was basically trying to force all the leadership below him that says, look, we are going to have a united front because I told you we're going to. You are going to make everyone around you bow down to this. Here's three in a leadership role that refuse to do it. There's enormous pressure in a business to make sure that you have a united front. And so let's finish reading that here. Verse 12 says, There are certain Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you've set up. Now this makes the king furious. 
One, because he's just been disobeyed. And I'm sure he was not used to being disobeyed blatantly. But from another standpoint, he may have understood the impact that this could have. If they have other people starting to follow these three men, you start seeing this crumbling effect within his kingdom. He had to basically nip it in the bud, as you say. He, had, he wanted to take care of it right then. So he, go, he goes and he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come to him. And he basically tries to lay it out very plain for him. He said, look, here's the rule I gave. You are going to follow this, period. Or do you see this furnace over here? I will not hesitate a second to throw you in this furnace. You will lose your life if you do not abide by what I tell you to do. You know, well, so let's go on and read. Verses 16 through 18. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I think it's very interesting the way they've worded this. Look in verse 17. It says, if this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. What they're meaning is he is capable of, of basically delivering us out of this fiery furnace. He's able to deliver us. But listen to what he says and what they say next. That he's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand. That was not a question of if in their mind. Okay, yeah, maybe he might deliver us out of this furnace and he might not. But you know what? It doesn't matter because he will deliver us from your hand. Period. You know what that is? That's an eternal mindset. They're thinking eternally they're going to be delivered from the king. They're not worried about what's going to happen in this furnace. Yeah, okay, he's able to deliver us during this little red part. But you know what? If he doesn't, doesn't matter. He will deliver us eternally. So we all know what happens. We know the three of them get thrown into the furnace. But I, I wonder if times that we've heard this story so much that we've almost immortalized it into some type of fantasy in our mind. That do we really grasp what was happening to these three men, the situation they were put into? So I thought this might kind of help put it in perspective a little bit. And some of you may remember seeing this on the news. We don't have cable at our house, so I don't ever see the news. So I actually don't remember this. But April of last year, so 16 months ago, something like or I don't know, 14 months, however long ago, April 2nd, 2015, in Kenya, there was a university where you had some terrorists went into this university and started killing people. They ended up killing 147 people in this university. And there's a lot of different reports, and a lot of it's been studied, obviously, and, okay, what was the reason behind, what were they linked to, what kind of terrorist organization. And a lot of it says they were, they were going around and killing people just randomly, sitting on rooftops just shooting people. But this has been confirmed because there were a lot of eyewitnesses saw this, and they have reported this, that one of the buildings they walked into, when they walked in, they said, all right, if you're a Christian, you stand over here. If you're a Muslim, you stand over here. They killed every Christian standing there. You have these people inside this building who had the opportunity to make a decision. Am I going to abide and save my own life? Am I going to conform and have this carnal mindset 
be concerned about this red part of this rope, or am I going to have this eternal mindset? These Christians who were shot made the decision they are going to stand by God no matter what. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just did. They were given an option to save their own life if they wanted to. But they decided, no, I'm standing by God, even if that means I lose my own life. Paul. And we've already read some of what Paul said, but he was willing to suffer for Christ. And we all know the sufferings that he went through. I mean, this was the cause that he was initially trying to destroy. He dedicated his life to destroying this cause of Christ, but was willing to suffer for it. And we've already read kind of what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about running the race, striving for that finish line to win, win that imperishable crown. But listen to this. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says that this is the reason why I suffer. He says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that thing which I've committed to him until that day. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I read that verse, I hear the melody of the song in my head because I've sung that song my whole life. But Paul said, I know what I believe. I'm willing to suffer these things. It's because I know and I believe and I'm persuaded that he, God, is able to keep that thing which I've committed to him. Well, what's the thing that Paul had committed to him? Paul committed himself to God. He committed his very soul to God. And he said, I'm persuaded, I have faith, that it doesn't matter what happens. I'm willing to suffer this stuff because I believe that he is willing and able to keep my soul. He's willing and able to keep that thing I've committed to him until the very end, until the end of the red part of the rope, until he can cross that finish line. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, all this stuff he went through, his, his shipwrecks, the perils, the beatings, the hatred he endured with, the loneliness, the nakedness, the hunger, the thirst, everything that he listed, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. It says, besides these other things, what comes upon me daily? What consumes my mind? My deep concern for the churches. Of everything else he had going on, that's what drove Paul, his deep concern for the churches and making sure that they survived, that they were following the gospel like they're supposed to. That is an eternal mindset. One more I want to look at. Several months back on a, um, uh, I think it was an adult Bible class, we kind of looked at the life of Joseph in his childhood, from the time he was born up until he was sold into slavery into Egypt. And we looked at it because we had been studying this back in the, uh, the high school and college age class, the uh, teenage class. And it's fascinating his life. And I saved him to last because I think his life as a whole represents what it truly means to have this eternal mindset. What we looked at during the Bible class here a couple months ago was the things that he suffered through as a child. He, he went through some hardships that we will never understand. He lost his mother very young during the birth of Benjamin. And so he basically grew up without a mother. He witnessed, or I don't know if witnessed, but he was there when he had a stepsister get raped. And in retaliation for that, he had two, steps, two stepbrothers that basically annihilated an entire village of people. So he's lived in a family dynamic that was just, we can't fathom what, is, what it's like to go through that. But what I really think is interesting is once he's sold into slavery, what happens? Genesis 39, it tells us several different times that God is with him. 
Now, why do you think that God's with him? I mean, we, we know the story of Joseph. We know the things that Joseph went through in his life. We know when he, when he it, from what's documented, it appears the first thing that happened is he was put in as a slave in Potiphar's household. Now, Potiphar was chief of the guards. So he, Potiphar has a fairly high-ranking position in Egypt. I'm sure he was somebody who could go in and talk to the Pharaoh if he needed to. I mean, he was basically in charge of all the security. He rose to prominence in Potiphar's house. And what did that get him? Being falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. And so now because of that, he's thrown into prison. Okay, God is still with him, the Bible tells us in Genesis 39. He rises to prominence in the prison to where now all the prisoners are under his control. That the warden basically doesn't have to bother with it. Joseph will take care of it. And so now you have the butler and the baker that had been thrown into prison with them. They have this dream. Joseph interprets this dream for them. And when they get out, what was his reward? To be forgotten. For two more years, the Bible says, he spent in prison after the butler and the baker got out of prison. For 13 years, the Bible says that he was sold into slavery when he was 17 years old. When he interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, to where basically Joseph more or less became the prime minister of Egypt, he was 30 years old, the Bible tells us. So he spent 13 years as a slave in Egypt of nothing but misery. Yes, he would get himself up to a level and just knock back down for something that was no, no cause of his own. If anybody throughout history had the right to be upset, had the right to be angry with God about a situation, I have to believe it would have been Joseph. Living through what he did as a child, then turn around and living for the next 13 years in Egypt, going through this persecution for no reason whatsoever. But you know the Bible gives no indication whatsoever that Joseph ever complained about any of it. The only time that you might even get a, a hint of something is when he interpreted the, the dream for the baker and the butler, and he said, hey, when you guys go up there, remember me. He's basically saying, hey, don't forget me down here. I went out of prison too. So he was trying to get himself out of prison. But that's the closest you can come to ever any indication that he complained about what he was going through. And, and I think it really is shown is when he's interpreting the dream for the baker and the butler when they're in prison, what he says to them in Genesis chapter 40, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. He's probably in his mid-20s at this point, gone through all he's gone through, and he's still giving God the glory for it. When he goes up to Pharaoh when he's 30 years old and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, talking about the drought, that's the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine that Egypt's going to go through, chapter 41, verse 25, it says God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. He still gives the glory and the credit to God. He knew what he was there for. He knew what his purpose was. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 41. I think it's very interesting what Joseph names his two sons. And it proves a point that I want to get at. And this may be something that a lot of people may look at and say, you know what, you say, yes, I've got to constantly think about eternity. I've got to constantly be looking at what, what I'm doing here, how it's going to impact the rest of my life. I've got to think about the rest of this rope that just goes on forever. But I have real problems to deal with. I have to live in the real world. I can't give 100% of my attention to this at all times. Can we still live in the real world and do that? Genesis chapter 41, start reading in verse 50. And it says, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Now listen to this. It says, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, meaning, For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. 
And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The meaning of the names of his two sons, Manasseh, is basically saying that, that God has allowed me to forget the afflictions of my father's house. That first 17 years that he went through of the hatred and the jealousy from his brother, them selling him into slavery, he wasn't oblivious to what was going on. He knew exactly what was happening. Then the way he named Ephraim, it says that God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. That's Egypt. The land of his affliction, that's that additional 13 years that he went through of all the pain and the suffering and the agony that he went through. He wasn't oblivious to what was going on. He knew exactly what was happening to him. But through all of that, he continued to have this eternal mindset. He gave God the glory for everything he did. Even to the point in Genesis 50 when his brothers came back to him, he said, look, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. He knew there was a purpose for what was going on. So that's just three examples. I mean, the Bible's littered with many other examples of how you have this eternal mindset. I mean, look at the life of Christ, what he went through. But what about us today? What things are there that exist in the world today that can kind of get us away from being able to have that eternal mindset? That it gets us to having what the Bible would call a carnal mindset. Could it be our jobs? Could it be entertainment that we like? Could it be sports? Could it even be our family? I mean, there, there comes a point that do you put your family before you put God? God said he wants to be first. That's it. Are we willing to give up pleasures in this world if we know that they are taking our mind off of what I need to be focused on for my future, for my eternity? My job. Does my job continually put me into situations where I feel like I have to, for lack of a better word, hide my faith at times? That I have to try to keep people from knowing that I'm, I'm a godly person or I'm a member of the church because it's going to affect a business deal that's going on. The entertainment that I expose myself to. And I, I, I heard a story. I was watching a sermon on YouTube a couple weeks ago um, down in South Haven, Mississippi, a um, um, power series, kind of a, a more or less a gospel meeting type thing that they have. And one of the preachers, he was talking about um, wasn't the congregation he was at the end, but one he had been at years before, that there was this movie he had heard that one of the members of his congregation was going to be projecting this movie on the wall on the outside of their house. And it was meant so the kids in the community could come and watch and just have a good time and I'm sure have some snacks or something. And he knew what the movie was and understood there's some things in the movie that were a little inappropriate. And so he said he actually went and talked to the parents and said, hey, do you really understand what's in this movie that you're going to be showing on the wall of your house? And he said after they thought about it, they said, you know what, that's probably not a good idea for us to watch that outside. Implying, I'll just go inside and watch it. If the world doesn't see what I'm doing, what's the big deal? I'm not having a negative influence on other people. There's a representation of a carnal mindset. They were wanting to watch a movie more than what they were concerned the effect it could have on them or even their kids from an eternal standpoint. Sports. Do we allow ball games to get in the way of us participating in church, for us of being at worship like we're commanded to? And it doesn't even have to be sports that we're per personally involved in, that we're playing in. Could it be ball games that I'm watching? Am I, am I going to stay home and watch something on TV? We're in the middle of the NBA Finals right now. If a ball game coincides with Bible class, which am I going to choose? 
am I going to leave and miss church on a Sunday morning so I can go to a Titans game? Because, I mean, it starts at 12. I mean, yeah, it'd be hard to beat the traffic and get there. It'd be okay. I'll just go to church next week. Are we willing to put other things in our life before God, before having this eternal mindset? You know, we're told in Proverbs chapter 4, it says to guard our heart because everything that we do flows from it. We are to guard our hearts. Basically, we are to guard our minds. Everything that we do flows from our minds. You know, our body doesn't do anything other than what our mind tells it to do. What our mind becomes ingrained with, what we, what we expose ourselves to, that's what the body carries out. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now listen to this. It says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but listen to how. It says, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're told to renew our mind. You know, when, when God came, or sorry, when Jesus came and he started his, his earthly ministry, one of the things that he really started pressing and what he was teaching is try to get people to understand, okay, it's, it's not necessarily always the action that you carry out that's the problem. It's what's rooted in your mind that's the problem. I mean, he gets into the discussion of, you know, it's not just adultery. It's the lust that's the problem. It's not just physically murdering your brother. The issue is that you even hate him to start with. It all starts right here. Like I said in Proverbs 4, it says to guard your heart. You guard your mind because everything we do comes from whatever's in our mind. The Bible also tells us that we are to basically avoid evil company, that we are to stay away from people who are going to influence us in a negative way because it's going to corrupt good habits. It's going to ruin our mind. It's going to change the way that we think. Having an eternal mindset is starting with renewing that mind. Yes, I may think about my job. I may think about a vacation. I may think about plans for a wedding that's coming up. But do I do it at the expense of thinking about my eternal soul? How do we get this eternal mindset then? It doesn't happen overnight. Just like an athlete, you know why they practice? It's because it trains their body to go through a routine. That when they see certain, say a basketball player, when they see certain things happen on the court, it's an automatic response that their body responds in a certain way to it. That's why you practice over and over and over. We have to do that as Christians. That's how we learn to get this eternal mindset. It's repetition. It's over and over. We have to delve ourselves into this, into the Word of God, into prayer. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take years of work to get to this point. Again, like I said, you surround yourself with people who are going to help you have that eternal mindset. Watch closely the people that we put closest to us in our lives. And sometimes that means even the family that we put closest to us in our lives, maybe they don't need to be the closest ones to us in our lives. Maybe we can have an influence on them, but in terms of our core people who are going to help us to grow, it needs to be people who have that eternal mindset. It all starts with discipline our body, that faith in God, 
looking towards that finish line that Paul talks about, wanting to win that imperishable crown. This rope that we talked about, like I said, it goes on for eternity. We all have it. It's going to represent one of two places for us. And we all know what that is. It's either heaven or it's going to be hell. What I do during the red part, I say it doesn't mean anything right now. It means everything right now. Everything, because it dictates what's going to happen for the rest of eternity. You know, if you're not obedient to God, then what you do during that red part of that rope, that doesn't matter. You could be the greatest person that's ever lived. You could think you have this eternal mindset, but if you're not obedient to God, your rope represents one thing. It represents hell. That's it. You have no option of heaven. Being obedient to God, you have to have that belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is exactly who he said he is, he is the head of this church. If you don't believe that, it doesn't matter. Repenting of your sins. Turning away. Brother Blackwell talked about it in the video, of, and I'm glad he talked about that. A lot of people think, well, okay, repenting of my sins just means I'm going to change my actions. No, it means so much more than that. It's changing right here. It's changing our minds. It's changing the way we think about things. It's renewing our minds. We must confess before others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That we must die to the old man, be buried with him in the water of baptism, come into contact that saving blood that Jesus flowed from that cross, and then rise a new man out of that watery grave. At that point, now the red part of your rope, it has meaning. Now you have the option of heaven being your eternal home someday. Maybe you've lived your life to where you've got back into this carnal mindset. That you've allowed the distractions of the world to completely consume everything that you think about. And you've put off God because of that. Bring your life back to God. Work on getting this eternal mindset back. We as your church want to help you with that. Everything that we need to do that is right here. If we live by this, we are going to have that eternal mindset. So turn your life back over to God. And we, we do ask that if either one of these be your need this morning, we ask you to come as we stand and we sing.